welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 80, recorded April 26th, 2012. Yeah, so uh, this will actually be published hopefully around May 18th, so April Fool's will be long gone uh, by the time you listen to this, but it's still fairly recent here, and we are getting a lot of uh, emails in regards to that April Fool's joke. Cool. The doctor. Yeah, so some people uh, are really digging that we did a Doctor Who episode because uh, they're big fans, and then others are saying that they knew who Doctor Who was, but not really uh, all that familiar with them. So oh. it's kind of cool. Maybe uh, maybe what, we, what knowledge we dropped in that episode will be useful when we do the Star Trek's Doctor Who crossover here someday soon. Oh, looking forward to that. So, anyways, I just like how that one random episode seemed to garner quite a few emails. Which is good, because we love the emails, so keep them coming out there. Yeah, it was kind of a dry spell there for a little while. We thought people stopped listening, but uh, it was was nice. Oh, no, how could that be? And new people, that's what's so great about it. Yeah. So. I mean, it's great hearing from the old fans, but uh, it's nice hearing from new people, too. Right. So, just imagine how many people are listening and not writing in. Millions, I'm sure. Ah, at least a dozen. <laughs> I'm hoping a dozen. All uh, right. Yeah, so today we're going to do uh, Star Trek 1992, issue number 31 through 33. Mm-hmm. Continuation of last time we were in the original series era with Sulu and Uhura uh, in the middle of some uh, some nasty murder business. Yes. It looks like the tables have been turned on them, from being witnesses to a murder to perhaps, perhaps being accused of said murder. Maybe. At least that's what the cover shows. Right. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this will all play out. And fortunately, we will get a resolution by the uh, issue number 33. Right. So we will wrap it up uh, in this this, uh, episode of the podcast. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. I love it when it does that. Me too. I don't like. Cliffhangers are okay, but, you know, eh. <laughs> you know, even though Star Wars, the second movie was a great movie and everything, I love it, I really hated it when it was the cliffhanger at the end. Oh, well, that's what made it so great. No, it didn't. It was yeah. like, I got to wait another three years to find out what happens to Han and stuff? Jeepers. <laughs> yeah, as a kid, I, I, I didn't really care, but I, I can see now that it, if that came out today, I would be really uh, probably upset, too. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. But in the end, Empire Strikes Back is my favorite Star Wars one. But hey, this is a Star Trek podcast. So oh, yeah, we, we keep going on those tangents. Well, what's wrong with that? It's all sci-fi. That's yeah, true. And it has Star at the beginning, so isn't it all the same thing? No. <laughs> Not at all. However, it's all good, solid entertainment. So, shall we go with issue number 31? Yeah, before we get started, though, just just to plant one little thing. Um, what is it with the courtroom dramas that, I mean, this is the second 
story arc that's really been focusing on a court of some sort. We had the trial of Captain Kirk, and then now we, we Picard was on trial a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Now this, and then Star Trek Six was coming out around the same time. There's just something about uh, the exercise of law that has drama in it. <laughs> All right, I thought maybe something happened in nineteen or nineteen ninety one or two that that uh, I just misremembered. Mm, are you are you actually trying to get at a specific event? No, I'm just wondering okay. why su- why the sudden uh, in- resurgence of Star Trek courtroom drama. I, good question. Although I will say, uh, Perry Mason. I mean, <laughs> courtroom courtroom drama has been around since, well, probably since before some of our were, uh, listeners were born. Well, definitely it was before I was born, so. So when were you born, youngin? Uh, early 70s. Early 70s, that's true. Yes, Perry Mason had run its course. Yeah, so uh, <sighs> this is not a Perry Mason podcast, so I guess we should get started. Are you going to allow me to now? I will allow it. Oh, thank you so much. So I have the honors of doing the first issue, which is issue number 31, Veritas Part 2, Sacrifices and Survivors is the title. Published date is May 1992. Writer is Howard Weinstein. Penciler is Gordon Purcell. Letters by Bob Pinaha. Inker Arnie Starr. Colorist Tom McCraw. And the editor is Robert Greenberger. The cover shows Sulu and O'Hara in the middle of a courtroom looking concerned as seven quatrini legal people, jurors, somebody behind them say with venomous contempt, Guilty! Guilty! All Ahura can say is, uh-oh. Kirk is recording a log entry, reminding us of the surviving Quatrini security agent in the sickbay, who identified members of their own security agency as the murderers who killed not only a suspected terrorist, but also tried to take them out in the bargain on the space station. Later from the bridge, Kirk is speaking to Security Director Prusk. He is informing Prusk of the unsettling testimony of the surviving security man. Prusk feigns ignorance of the rogue agents that would do such a thing. He states that there will be a full investigation. After the conversation is over, Kirk and Spock express their doubts that Prusk knew nothing of the assassination attempt. In his office, Prusk expressed his anger over the three witnesses to his volatile murder that he cannot allow to be traced to him. He tells his right-hand man, Ronigo, to eliminate the two Federation witnesses. Ronigo says he will do so, and this time there will be no loose ends. On Quatrini, Sulu and Ohura enter the council chambers to give their testimony behind very heavy closed doors. In Kirk's office, McCoy is telling him they should have gone with Sulu and Uhura. He knows what Prusk will do to cover his hide. Kirk says the dealings with planetary governments need to start from a level of mutual trust. The conversation ends with Kirk promising that if they are late by so much as one minute, they will go looking for Uhura and Sulu. Meanwhile, in the council chambers, the council members are reacting badly to Uhura and Sulu's testimony. They want to know how the murder 
of their most valuable terrorist suspect could have happened so easily. They want an explanation from Prusk. Prusk comes forward into the room to speak for himself. With the bravado of a master prefabricator, Prusk raises his voice and states, No one is angrier than him over the loss of Bokan, the suspected terrorist. Rather than explaining anything, he states he needs stricter laws and more power to allow him to effectively battle the insurgents and protect the Quattrini way of life. The lead counselor points out that those chains that Prusk wants to remove protect the people's liberty and avoids a police state that a less principled security chief could establish. Prusk is successful in getting the more fearful members on his side, while the braver members want to safeguard their liberty. The arguments over the correct way forward continue long after Prusk escorts Ohura and Sulu to the shuttle. On the way to the ship, Prusk continues to make his points about Quattrini society itself is at stake, if they do not give him the control to crush the rebellion now. Prusk introduces ancient Ronago to them as their escort back to the Enterprise. The shuttle lifts off, and not long into the flight, Ronago quietly kills the pilot with a razor-thin and efficient blade. He calls Sulu to the cockpit, asking him for aid with a troublesome navigational computer. Ronago's attack fails, but not before he cuts open Sulu's back. Sulu is able to throw Ronago over his shoulders, but his landing results in Ronago's blade entering his torso. With both Pilot and Ronago dead, or close to it, they decide to abandon ship based on a self-destruct circuit that apparently is set to detonate in three minutes. They make their way to an escape pod before the blast destroys the shuttle. The escape pod can be piloted, but its range is so limited they won't be able to make it to the Enterprise or Quatrini. Instead, they set a heading for the planet Beta, which is closest, and they hope they can make They note that whoever tried to kill them once will likely try again. To be continued. Interesting. Indeed. The shoe is dropped, and the vile Prusk makes his move. He is a nasty little dude. He is nasty. He looks nasty. And he is definitely without true honor. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I don't like that guy. Which, of course, is what they want. Right. I also don't like that his motivations aren't all that clear. I mean, he wants to take, you know, he... he, Is it the next issue where we kind of get into his motivations? Yeah, it is. So I'll hold off on that. Well, I, 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 I don't know that, quite in my opinion... They never really reveal his true motivations. Unless he truly does think the Badens are a true threat, and I don't think that's the case. Because uh, as we, well, we'll, we'll, we'll be introduced to the Baden rebels soon. Right, but, yeah. And, and the next issue is where he very, very briefly, high level, explains, you know, Basically, what he's trying to do, and, and but his motivations aren't, aren't ever given. It's power. 
Well, okay. Well, it's never clearly given, but I think it's pretty obvious. This guy wants power. He it's just a wants, power play. It's, he just wants power to have power. Well, yes. And, I, and, and as we'll find out, his goals are probably beyond his current post. Right. All right. Well, we'll talk about it next issue then. Let's not, let's not ruin everything. Right, right, right. So. Anyway, so uh, because it's been a couple of weeks since we read the last issue, issue number 30, um, I was a little confused as to how far the space station was where the Enterprise is and where the uh, Quanti home world was. Doesn't it seem like it, they're depicting it as being pretty far away? Yeah, so I think the way it works is Quatrini is closest to the sun, or their sun. Right. And then Beta is further away. That's why it's an ice planet. And then beyond Beta, apparently, is the space station, Veritas. But it must be a, a good distance away. Agreed. Which I did not get that, that feeling when they go off with, with Prask at the end of uh, issue number 30. That's true. But, you know, that's just a feeling you got. They didn't actually say. Right. But it caused me confusion in this book when they were grabbing a shuttle to go back to the Enterprise instead of just calling up Scotty and, and beaming away. Exactly. And and now, because of the distance, that does explain why they didn't bother with transporters. Right. So where you normally think of a space station being closer or maybe within orbit of the home planet, in this case, for whatever reason, uh, they put it further out. Maybe yeah, make now, it easier to get to. I don't know. By now, by by, tra- by travelers and that kind of stuff. Don't know. Right now, Deep Space Nine. It was was it beaming distance away from Bajor? Because I know that it wasn't incredibly close. I think they still had to take runabouts from Deep Space Nine to get to Bajor, didn't they? <sighs> I, you're probably right. You're probably right. I think originally it was right around, right in orbit of Bajor, and they were using it to mine up. Or beam up the rock that the the slaves had to mine, mm. and then when the wormhole started opening up, uh, that first episode they moved the space station closer to the closer to the wormhole. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So yeah, I always think of space stations just being around whatever planet. Sure, like some of those ones you see around Earth all the time, right? Uh, as they're taking off on their interplanetary exploits. But I guess it doesn't have to be so. Oh, well. no, it does not. And if your your express purpose is for trade and that kind of stuff, then maybe it does make sense to be a little further out. And they seem pretty antisocial, so maybe maybe that had something to do with it. They didn't want uh, people getting too close to their home world. Could be, could be. Yeah, apparently they have a fair amount of technology, so they probably not as advanced as the, as the Federation, but. They seem to have enough technology that moving long distances doesn't seem to be too much of a problem for them. Right. But they're definitely not part of the Federation, right? True. They are not part of the Federation. And and that's uh, they say that before this issue? I believe so. I, okay. I think – I thought that's when we originally – I think it was in the uh, first issue, I, I think. Okay. When they were explaining the space station and about the uh, the home planet. Maybe they did. It's been – like I said, a couple of weeks. It's been so long. <laughs> so, Anyways, so did I you got know? a question. Oh, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Go. No, please. Okay. Now, I know that to make this story work, they need to let Sulu and Uhura go alone. However, 
I really think at the end of the last issue, when Kirk did express some concern to McCoy that allowing Prusk to take Sulu and her and the shuttlecraft to testify was a bad idea, it finally took them to the point of getting the testimony to confirm that it was actually Prusk's security people that did the assassination. It took them that long to come to that conclusion. And then, after at this issue, after Uhura and Sulu are in their hands, then at the beginning of this issue, Kirk goes in and says, oh, hey, by the way, we have a witness that says your people killed everybody. You know, it's like, how good an idea is that? I mean, that's like kicking the hornet's nest when, you know, when they got your people. I don't know. I don't know if that was the wisest thing. Yeah, good point. Uh, I might I might have kept that. Uh, maybe it would be better to keep that under the, under wraps a little longer because definitely it did not. <laughs> it, it motivated Prusk even more to want to go after and and kill Ohura and Sulu. Well, I mean, he was going to do it anyways. That's why he took him in the first place, right? To kill him. Uh, probably, but also I think the council wanted to talk to him. They wanted to hear the testimony. Yeah, but they didn't give much testimony because. Prask pretty much took over and manipulated them. Well, okay, so although we didn't see it in the comic book, they did give their testimony, Ohura and Sulu. We just did, they just didn't bother showing it oh, did know, they? in the comic. And then they were all reacting to the testimony. All right, yeah, so looking at it, uh, you're right, Ken. Uh, the, uh, as always. As always. <laughs> yeah. The... <laughs> Yeah, no, just uh, they they flashed over to Kirk and McCoy talking, and then they flashed back, and the the jurors or whatever they are are yelling. So I, I didn't catch that in that time they told the story. Right. So. Well, well. I mean, we we we've heard the story how many times? Don't bother telling us it again. We the readers do not need to hear it again. Mm-hmm. True. So, anyways, good point. But Prask, you you got to admit, he, he has a silver tongue. He has a silver tongue. And with the bravado he shows, he is just a bold-faced liar. I mean, just a bold-faced liar. And, he, and you think they made him short in stature on purpose, that he's, you know, is has he, a kind of a Napoleon? Is he that? Complex? Oh, oh. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Kind of a little Napoleonic. Although he, I think he's a little chunkier than Napoleon. But, uh, yes, he isn't the tallest guy in the world. Right. Especially next, next to Ronago. And uh, in the next issue, that, that woman aide of his, she's quite a bit taller than he is. Oh, right. Yep. But, uh, anyways, he's uh, he reminds me of Quark. Or, yeah, so... Of oh, Quark? What the Ferengi <laughs> ultimately will become, which is short comic relief guys. Ah! <laughs> Doesn't he kind of look like that? Uh, kind of. They've got – actually, what he really reminds me of, especially on page 12, is there's a cartoon character on Nickelodeon. Arnold. He had a, a, like a football-shaped head. Matter of fact, the, the kids would call him football head or whatever. Arnold. You know, kind of like Stewie. But uh, that's not, I forgot the name of the, the, the character. Arnold. Anyway, anybody with kids out there. Uh, that were in the right time frame might know who this blonde character was. Your kids are all too young. Arnold. Yeah, I, I can see, I can see the the character. I just don't know what his name was. Yeah, and I don't remember it either. And I was exposed to it multiple times via my kids. But um, yeah, so he's got 
because the ears are shaped the way they are, and because he's got kind of a flat head anyway, uh, to some degree, he really looks like a football head. He does. He does. Just thought I mentioned that. And it's weird so, that his head's so flat compared to everybody else who has a it, normal shaped head. Exactly. These um, these quattrini. I mean, they have differences from humans, no two ways about it, mainly in their ears. And there are some different styles of ears going down here. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, definitely those ears are uh, are weird on him. Yeah, he's got, like, uh, some kind of, I, I can't, like, beagle ears, but they're kind of pointed out and uh, rigid. Uh -huh. But they're kind of that shaped, I guess. Right. Anyways, it's different look. It's a very different look. They're be they're trying to be creative, but still making them kind of look like humans. I mean, they got two arms, two legs. They come in different colors. Five five fingers, five toes. Ah, uh, good point. Yes, yes, indeed they do. Hmm. So so right there on the uh, courtroom scene, um, when it flashes back after McCoy and Kirk's scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, it just shows the chamber doors, and it shows like a purple cat. You noticed the purple cat too. What was the deal with the purple cat? I got the same note. He, so just it's, it's a purple cat who's hanging around outside the heavy closed doors. It, no, no particular reason for him to be there, um, nope. unless it's Isis or something. But she's always black. <laughs> yes, I think it was Isis. Ah, that must be it. Uh, Anyways, I was just thinking, man, these, these guys really love animals. They just let these cats walk around in their uh, courtrooms. Yeah, kind of weird. It just seemed random. It's just another reason I, I'm not crazy about the Quattrini. Cat lovers. Ugh. <laughs> so did, did you think it was odd that even when Sulu and Ahura weren't in the cockpit that all the controls were in English? Nah. <laughs> yes, you would kind of expect something else, wouldn't you? Actually, I didn't even notice. Oh, warning, self-destruct, engaged. Right. And then, well, like, when he's hitting the... Uh, uh, there was a few times where it showed him hitting buttons, and, and they were all in English. Right. Well, quite frankly, if they if it wasn't in English, it's like, you know, how could they know that there was a self-destruct thing going? Well, when they look at it, it turns to English because of oh, the Universal, universal Translator. Translator. <laughs> or uh, the TARDIS or, or however or, uh, you know. Yeah, whatever. Whatever they fish, do. Okay. Whatever you want to say is your way of, of of converting it to something that you would understand. Exactly. But when it's the alien doing it, it should be in his native language. I think you're right about that. Unless. Unless. We have Universal Translators. Built into the comic? And it converted it for us. Oh my gosh, I think you're right. I, I bet that's it. I'm yeah, sure that's it. No, it isn't. I'm um, not reading manga now because manga. I know that it'll get translated in English for me. Yeah, buy a lot of books. That'd be good. <laughs> That'd be good. So I thought Sulu was pretty bitching in the fight because Ronigo was a lot bigger guy. So what, he like use jujitsu or something? Yeah, it was nice to see him being able to fight somebody without having to rely on a sword. <laughs> Indeed, especially in the new movies, since they make a bit, such a big deal out of that. Right. Although that sword was pretty cool, how it was... would assemble itself. Yeah, yeah, that was Not very handy. Practical. 
Yeah, because if you're jumping out of this uh, out of a spaceship and, and doing that uh, that million miles an hour plunge to Earth, you're probably not going to be having a scabbard with a, sword, a full-size sword there. <laughs> right. Which, by the way, did you notice in the news where some daredevil sponsored by Red Bull uh, had broken the free-fall parachuting a height record? Right, I saw that. That was pretty cool. I was thinking of, you know, Star Trek Eleven. Thinking about it all the way. Well, you know, in the original script for Star Trek Generations, they had Kirk doing that. Oh, really? Yeah, so there was like this whole prelude before he goes to the Enterprise B, and it's kind of showing how he his life doesn't have meaning anymore, so he's taking all these unnecessary risks. And there's a scene where he jumps from a space station circles the earth a couple times in this suit and then kind of paracels down and when he lands spot uh scotty's there to greet him and they beam back up to uh to do the uh the ceremony for the enterprise b well uh it's funny because i think they filmed some of it uh but it didn't make it to the movie but the costume that he wore which was like this uh it kind of looks like metal toilet paper because it's kind of yeah Applied like that, you know, like a quilt kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but that costume ended up being used in Voyager when uh, Bellana was was uh, doing some Daredevil stuff. Huh. Uh, hmm. So cool. it was kind of cool how that scene with Shatner didn't actually make it, but they reused the same concept in Voyager. Yeah. Cool. But anyways. I had no idea. Oh, I just thought I'd mention it. <laughs> You just wanted me to go cool. on another tangent. I know how you are. No. Well, you you saw my tangent, and you raised it another tangent. And I tried <laughs> to bring it back into Star Trek. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways. Exactly. So, yes, yeah, Sulu, Ronigo takes him out, but not before getting his back skewered. Ouch. And then Ronigo doing the, uh, you know, plunging him, himself on his knife to... Uh, Right. Sacrifice himself. Right, and that was a little confusing. I mean, it looked like he he might have hurt himself, but he definitely did the old uh, killing of himself at the end. Yeah, I was trying to remember what that the Japanese word for that was. Oh, uh, where you uh, uh, kam- no kamikaze is when you plunge a plane down. Right. Uh, I'm not sure what that call- what that's called. Right, right. I know there are many listeners that are saying, <laughs> Why are you guys just don't know that? Right, well, we don't. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure a lot of times when we're talking and we don't know what we're talking about, people do that. Yes, probably. The few people listening. Uh, millions Harry, and no. millions are listening. Yeah, billions and millions. Yeah. And, and you know what? It was very handy that Ronigo did end up killing himself in the end. But it's like, what a rip. I mean, why would he do it? Why would he do that? Exactly. I mean, I mean, I, it, I, it, go ahead. I mean, obviously, they it gave uh, Sulu and or her the chance to get to the uh, escape pod, but uh, still. Well, I mean, he, he stabbed himself because he's bleeding before he, he truly, you know, before he impales himself through the chest. So obviously, he, he injured himself in some way. Um, I think there on the top of page. 18, you can kind of see the knife going in his side, but 
you think that he would still have a little more fight in him before he just kills himself and, exactly. and hopes hopes for the best. Right. Anyways, he was probably a slacker anyways. He was. Well, they talk later in the issue or in a different issue about how what a slacker he was, so there you go. All right. Anything else? Not really. No. No, nothing else. I'm looking forward to uh, finding out what happens next. Well, let's find out right now. So, issue number 32, called Veritas Part 3, Danger on Ice. Not Disney on Ice. Danger Danger on Ice. That's right. And uh, all the credits are the same, with the exception of editor. So, Robert Greenberger is out, and we get Kim Yale as the incoming editor. All right, so the cover shows Kirk sitting in his command chair. Spock is standing behind him. And then on the computer screen, we see pictures of Sulu and Ahura. Uh, Might be some sort of driver's license picture because it's just a head-on shot. And there's a big caption underneath their, their pictures that says, Missing. So the story starts off with Sulu and Ahura's uh, small escape pod crashing on an ice planet. Or actually, it's already crashed, but uh, we find out that it's crashed on an ice planet. Uh, This planet is very reminiscent to Hoth or Vulcan's sister planet, Delta Vega. If Delta Vega (laughs) truly was a sister planet. (laughs) Whatever the heck that thing was. Right. Was it a moon? Was it a planet? What? 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 I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I just I threw that in there as a jab. It looks more like Hoth than anything else. Agreed. So uh, Sulu is stable, but he's still very injured. Uh, Ahura is planning to take a trek around the landscape to look for help. Sulu weakly tries to go himself, but Ahura puts her foot down, and he agrees to stay in the craft, mumbling, Yes, mother. Ahura dons a warm, fur-lined coat and ventures out of the craft. In Prusk's luscious office, his lovely lackey named Turia, who, as we mentioned earlier, is quite taller than he is, uh, gives him the news that the shuttle exploded, but an escape pod made it to the surface planet of Beta. He assumes that this is Rongo, or how did you pronounce his name? Ronongo? Ronigo. Ronigo. He assumes that this is Ronigo in the pod, but Turia explains that this could be the Starfleet officers and that somehow they escaped. She assures him that the pod's communications systems are too weak to reach the Enterprise. The Enterprise is still at the uh, space station. Prusk tells Turia that the officers need to die so that he can blame the terrorists and take control of the government himself. He orders Turia to send their best special ops team to kill any survivors in the escape pod. Also, they should kill any inhabitants of Beta that might have come in contact with them. So, he's, he's going all out. He's an evil little dude. On the Enterprise, Kirk is noting that Sulu and Ahura are delayed in their return to the Enterprise. He orders the ship to head towards Quatrini and rendezvous with his crew. Once they arrive in orbit, Prusk informs Kirk that the shuttle was attacked and destroyed. Kirk asks for permission to help with the search, but Prask, or Prusk uh, says that the ship was destroyed uh, shortly before it left orbit 
and that there were no there's no evidence of survivors or the escape pod. And then he closes the communications. Spock reminds Kirk that it would violate Quatini's sovereignty if they scanned the planet without permission. But Kirk says that they can scan the empty space around Quatini without issue. On the planet Beta, Ohora is being watched from afar. Her observers look like the Quatrinis, or the Quatrini people. Uh, the leader is named Ross. And he tells his men that they're going to meet their mysterious visitor. So now we're closer to where Ahura is. And she's heading towards what she thinks is life signals. She has like some sort of uh, tricorder type thing. She attempts to climb an ice-covered outcropping but falls. While she's attempting to stand up, Ross and his men surround her and tell her to stay where she is. On the Enterprise, Kirk is frustrated that they are not finding anything. Spock recommends that they should check out the planet Beta since it would have been between Quatrini and the space station. So a natural um, course for the uh, shuttle to, to potentially go. Ohora and her captors arrive at the escape pod. She shouts for Sulu, but he is unable to respond. Ross, Ohora, and a medic named Farron enter the pod and find Sulu on the floor. The medic looks him over and claims that he is dead. She does, however, try to revive him. She takes a few leaves out of her bag and places them in his nose. She tells Ahura that the leaves can bring back the recently dead, but they can also kill a completely healthy man. The leaves seem to work, and Sulu coughs and groggily wakes up. Ross informs them that they need to destroy the escape pod since it is emitting a distress signal. And the Quatinis, if the Quatinis find them, they will finish what Renago started. In a hovercraft, they're leaving the shuttle as it explodes, or the escape pod as it explodes, and they're heading off to Ross's hideout. En route, he explains to Ahura why the conflict between Beta and Quatini. It all started a hundred years ago when Ross's people were sent to Beta to mine it. His ancestors learned about the land, and they respected it. But the Quatinis wanted it only for the minerals beneath the surface. The conflict started recently when Ross's people were ordered to destroy a, a large stretch of land that was home to several unique animals and plants, including these magical leaves that were able to revive Sulu. Once they arrive at the hideout, which happens to be in a large cave, uh, Ross orders Farron to make Ahura and Sulu some beds. Farron grumbles that she's a healer and not a chambermaid. Sulu is still pretty out of it and soon falls into a deep sleep. At the debris of the escape pod, some of Prusk's, Prusk's men are, are investigating the wreckage, and they're noticing that there's no evidence of bodies. The leader of this special ops team deduces that the Badians must have found the Starfleet crew and tried to destroy the escape pod. He tells them that they are going to find the Badians, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, and the Starfleet crew and kill them all. To be continued. Badians, maybe? Is that how you say it? Badians? I don't know how to say any of this stuff. I'm just taking my <laughs> shot at it. <laughs> Beta, Badians, I don't know. Badianites? 
Madianites, that could be it. <laughs> I doubt it, but maybe. <laughs> Citizens of Beta. Yes, that would work. A little long, but it would work. Yes, it wouldn't be such a tongue twister. Exactly. I thought that escape pod was kind of an interesting design. It's kind of big for an escape pod. I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking how small the the escape pods tend to be, the Federation ones and the ships, that Mm -hmm. we've seen anyway. And they don't seem to be nearly so nice to pilot and stuff. I mean, this this looks like it's almost as big as some of those next gen shuttles. Well, I think it's definitely as big as uh, like a, maybe even as big as the original series shuttles. I mean, because look at when she's coming it, out of the yeah. the porthole there at the at the side. It's it's a there's a good amount of space above her head and below her. Yeah, the the thing up the thing that's weird about it though in some in some angles where they're showing it, it looks mighty roomy inside. But you look at it from the outside, and it's like. Well, first of all, I don't know how they fit everything. You got this huge maw where the engine exhaust comes out in the back. I mean, this thing is as wide as the entire crew compartment. This is a big engine exhaust. And I guess if you're trying to throw yourself away from a uh, a ship that's about to explode, I guess that's why it's so big. But man... Between the the passenger compartment and between where the where the big exhaust thing is, where they really put the engine parts, I don't know. But it's got he's got these skids on the bottom. Uh, you can apparently pilot it. Obviously, they they piloted to the nearest planet, which turned out to be uh, Beta. Um, it, it looked it looked kind of sophisticated. Um, it, it looks retro sophisticated because if you look at it on the outside, it reminds me of like. Um... Like Captain Nemo's ship from the oh. twenty twenty thousand leagues under the sea, oh. with hmm, the big, you know, circular portholes kind of thing. Right. Oh yeah, kind of. Yeah. And it looks like it's just, looks like it's all metal, and you can imagine like rivets in it and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. That was the vibe I was getting. A fine vibe, a fine vibe. So, all right, that was interesting. I like ships. So, what do you think of the magic leaves? Um, I thought, gee, how handy. <laughs> and not only that, when they first give it to her, uh, Sulu, and they shove it up his nose, um, he seems to come to pretty well and very fast. Wouldn't you if they were shoving something up your nose? <laughs> I don't know. If I'm, if, I mean, he was supposedly dead. Yeah, she, I mean, she makes, she makes it very clear that he is dead. Not dying, exactly. but dead. Yeah, and if you look at his skin and everything, he looks white. He looks like the blood's drained out of him. But then the leaves go up his nose, and bingo! He's back up and I mean, he's not doing jumping jacks or anything, but you know, he's sitting it up. He's sitting up. He's looking better. His color's better. It's like boom. Yeah, I don't quite know how the leaves work because you think I mean, not real. He's not breathing. His blood's not flowing. So, how, what what exactly did it do? I don't know. If he was, yeah, that's a very good point. If he was truly dead, then how could anything from that leaf get into his body? Right. That's a very good point. But it works. That's all we. That's all we really need to know. Right. And I mean, not to not to spoil anything, but they made such a big note that it could kill a. 
perfectly healthy man. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of thought that was foreshadowing. I mean, why? Oh, they... you thought you thought they were going to do something with that, and they didn't. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, that, that's not much of a spoiler. <laughs> no, it's not. But you know that that did not not seem like it was set up for. We're gonna shove these up these bad guys' nose later. Or something. <laughs> That's how we're gonna get out of this predicament. Um, that didn't occur to me. Oh. However, that now that you mention it, that makes that makes it sound like a reader who's sophisticated enough that he wants to you know try to figure things out ahead of time. I don't want to. It's just I was kind of rolling my eyes, going, "Boy, this is pretty obvious." And then I was wrong. So. Kudos to them. Yeah, but who who knows? Maybe that actually was part of the plan, and they just decided to veer away from it as the uh, production continued. Right. And, and then... actually, when it does resolve, I got some comments to make. But that's <laughs> we'll we'll wait till after that. that, that that's one. next issue, man. Exactly. So anyway, so the whole the whole thing ended up being almost a. Uh, uh, save Mother Earth type storyline where one group wants to plunder the environment for these yep. minerals and the other one's talking about you're gonna, if we do, we're going to lose all these animals and magic vegetation. Exactly. It, it definitely had a tree hugger theme. Which, which is fine, but it's just odd because that's the only time that it even attempts to make that note, that uh, that point. That point. That yeah. one sentence mm-hmm. while they're in the hovercraft, and then we we never get that that justification again. Well, I think it does two things though. Number one, it expresses the point of the author. I think so. He's able to push his agenda, uh, which is fine. Um, I, I I'm digging a a reasonable balance between rape and pillage and save, <laughs> safeguarding the environment. Um, but then it's also a way, a mechanism for you to say, "Oh, these are the good guys." Yeah, these are the, these are definitely the good guys, right? Uh, I mean, because we know Presk is a bad guy, because everybody hates Presk by now. But yeah, these guys, the, these are the good guys, right? Uh, which, of course, you'll question soon. But Will we? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Anyways, what else you got? I thought it was kind of funny that no matter where you go. Doctors are apparently sarcastic smartasses like McCoy. <laughs> so fairly, I, I, I did like that. Yeah. Well, they, they, yeah, I, I liked it, but it was like, oh, they're just making her McCoy. I mean, a little too close to McCoy. I, I liked it, but they were making it very close to McCoy. Well, when, she was, when she was quoting him? Basically, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I thought it was funny. Uh, I'm a doctor, not a, what, what, a chambermaid. Chamber, chambermaid. Right. Like, geez. And she did it a couple times. It's like, you know. Right. I hope, I hope McCoy's getting some kickbacks, some royalties or something on this. <laughs> yeah, I always liked it in Voyager when uh, the doctor oh. did that. Now, that made sense. And why did it make sense? Because, of course, McCoy, among other famous Starfleet doctors, were part of his program. Exactly. Exactly. Now that makes sense. This one, absolutely no exposure to McCoy. Yeah, but it was for comedic value. It was. It was fine. It was nice. It was cute. Yeah, I liked it. Another thing about those leaves, those uh, oblia leaves, 
They reminded me a little bit of Cordrazine. You remember that tricky stuff? The name sounds familiar. Yes, as it should. Can you refresh my memory? Well, you may remember the city at the edge of forever, where McCoy got shot with a whole hypo of it, rather than just a drop or two. Oh, that's right. A drop or two could save a life. Ten times that amount has been pumped into our Dr. McCoy. But he bounces back okay after... Eventually, after a big hangover. Yeah. Well, he's, he stays in the bed for a good chunk of that episode. Right. And did you know that Harlan Ellison originally wrote that script as a uh, with a drug theme? A... Harlan Ellison wrote that script? Oh, yeah. Sitting on the Edge of Forever. Harlan Ellison. Wow. Yeah. Great, great sci-fi author. So originally it was written where McCoy had some kind of drug dependency. Huh. And that's what caused uh, the whack-out scene. But then but that... they, had to, they had to change it in the end. Okay. And uh. Ellison was finally able to get his doctor with a drug dependency theme in Babylon 5. Oh, so he wrote some of Babylon 5 too? He did. He was a creative consultant and he wrote, you know, some scripts for them. Hmm. I need to watch that show. Uh, you know, despite what they say about it on the Big Bang Theory, I liked it. <laughs> they do not like it on the Big Bang Theory. Or at least in Sheldon general, does not. not. Sheldon, does, Sheldon definitely does not. But they do say disparaging things from time to time. Yeah, I've only seen the pilot. And I was like, oh, I've seen Deep Space Nine before. Ah! <laughs> but they came out at the same time. Right, I know. And year, I know the story the that season. supposedly the the creator of the Babylon 5 thinks that they stole his idea for Deep Space Nine. Oh, really? Oh. Mm -hmm. Supposedly he shopped it at, at Paramount before he went to uh, Warner Brothers. Oh, really? And he thinks that uh, they saw his script and then put the Star Trek brand on it. Oh, interesting. Mm, well, I read that article a few years ago, so I may be mixing up some of the facts, but I'm pretty sure that's what I read. Yeah. Well, who knows? Uh, Definitely Babylon 5 borrowed a bit from Star Trek and other sci-fi operas. So, whatever. They all borrow from each other. It's all good. It's all good. We all love it. You know? Well, I mean, Star Trek itself is borrowing from oh, huge other franchises or yes. other other movies and and novels and yeah, and we right. talked about this before. Yeah, All right. there is nothing new under heaven and earth. Whatever. Is Reason that why they ideas? quote Peter Pan so much? Because they're just borrowing from it. Yes, I guess. What Shakespeare? Anyway, I know they, I know, but don't they, they quote Peter Pan at one point too? Oh, in Star Trek, in, in the movies, one of them. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, but was that all related to Kirk's feeling know? old? Exactly. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, not wanting to grow up. Whatever. Act his age. Going after McCoy's daughter, really. Anyway, so Colonel Gavok was quite a nasty character, don't you think? The dude at the end. The dude at the end. I didn't know. I didn't catch his name. Colonel Gavok. As opposed to Garrick. 
and especially at the end when in the final panel of the of the comic they got his face all looking kind of like the devil or maybe like Darth Maul a little little, little Darth Maulish. Right. I was thinking that he looked a lot like Sinestro from Ooh, uh, the Green yes. Lantern. Indeed, indeed. With that little pencil thin mustache. Exactly. I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, he's a nasty dude, and he's going to kill them all. Kill them all? Of course. Well, we'll see in the next issue. But he changes from ultimate evil threat to somewhat less, in my opinion. Super nice guy? Not quite that far. Not quite that far. Oh, okay. A little comment for the end of the issue. All right. Anything else? Because I have gone through mine. I'm done with mine, too. All right. Let's go to the next one. Excellent. This is issue 33, Veritas, The Conclusion, Cold Comfort. July 1992 is published date. Um, a lot of the lot of same people are involved. Was Alvey, I think Alvey's new. He's the inker in this issue. Yeah, he's new. And then in this one, rather than saying outgoing and incoming uh, editors, this one says coexisting editors, Robert Greenberger and Kim Yale. Well, that's weird because Robert Greenberger's not on issue thirty-two at all. Right. Uh. Well. Yeah. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, that's interesting. But they brought him. Oh back. no, no, you're right. It. I, I didn't. There's another bar below right. that said outgoing editor. I didn't catch that. I think they both. Right. They both had a hand in that previous one. Yeah. Uh, and then this one too. But yep. you know, it's kind of weird. So it sounds like Kim. It sounds like Kim is replacing him. But then by this issue, they're both doing it. So it's like, hmm, okay, whatever. In the letters columns, it, it talks a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Okay. Synopsis. The cover shows Ohura on the icy surface of planet Beta. A nasty-looking Baden is leaping from an outcrop above Ohura, about to pounce on her. Bold lettering on the lower left says, Ohura left out in the cold. Ohura is out on the frozen landscape with Roz. They are discussing Prusk's lies about Baden rebels traveling all the way to the station to kill one of their own leaders. Roz is amazed at the ridiculousness of the accusation considering how little resources the Batons have. They have not even been able to contact their own isolated groups in weeks since their communications have been down. Ross asks Ahura to help them repair his people's equipment, but she turns him down due to the Prime Directive. Kona, a young Baton, calls them to come quickly to Sulu's bedside since he has taken a turn for the worse. Just as Dr. Firian, I'm calling her doctor now, is about to administer more life-saving leaves in liquid form, Raz orders her to stop. He says if Ohura does not agree to help them restore communications, he will let Sulu die. This is the part I was talking about before. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, Kirk and company continue their sensor sweep of the space between Quatrini and the space station. So far, with no indication of a ship exploding, however, the search continues on. A lot of space to scan. Back on Beta, Ahura is alone outside, thinking how she had to give in for Sulu's sake. Suddenly, Ferian, the healer, comes out of the cave to tell her Sulu is past the worst of it. Ferian shows that she has some bedside manner by trying to help Ahura to understand Raz and the hard life on Beta. 
Ahura is still not happy about how Roz held Sulu's life for ransom in exchange for her help with the communications equipment. Ahura states that their equipment is so low power that it could barely reach low orbit, much less the Enterprise somewhere in the Quatrini system. Ross joins them and says he wants to give Ahura a better taste of life as an outlaw by showing her a secret Quatrini staging base that they recently discovered. On the Enterprise, Kirk and Spock are discussing the small amount of wreckage they found that could be from a Quatrini shuttlecraft. It was found relatively close to Beta, so if Ohura and Sulu had survived and made it anywhere, Beta is the most likely place they would have tried to reach. Back on Beta, Ohura, Ross, and Kona enter the secret Quatrini base. No one is inside, and Ross conjectures they might have used this as the base from which they captured Bokan. Ross wants to blow the base up but Ahura suggests to leave it as it is and keep it under surveillance. When the Quatrini return, attack. Ross likes the plan, and they leave. Meanwhile, Colonel Gavok and his men are searching caves for Sulu and Ahura. So far, the caves they find with life signs in them are actually decoys. The life signs are being generated by devices. Back at Ross's cave, Ahura is feeding Sulu soup and doing what she can to nurse him back to health. She hints they may have a way to contact the Enterprise. Later that night, Ahura sneaks out of the cave, finds a hidden electronic device, and starts walking to the secret Quatrini installation. On the way, she is tackled from behind by Ross, who wants to know what she is doing out alone this late at night. She says she is going to use the Quatrini radio equipment to signal the Enterprise. Ross chides her for taking the chance with possibly being discovered out here, but in the end, he agrees to help her to use the transmission equipment. After Ohura sends the message, the transmitter is blown to bits, and she is sent backwards hard. Colonel Gavok enters, along with Ross, being restrained by two of Gavok's thugs. The colonel is quite happy with his capture of these two. Gavog boasts how they will torture Ross into telling them all about his amateur terrorist network, and how they will beat Ohura into telling them where Sulu is. Just as Gavok winds up to strike Ohura, she kicks him in the family jewels. Just as Gavok's men begin to advance on Ohura, Chekhov and a security detail enter to take the Quadrini agents into custody and save the day by the sheer power of saying, that is a very good suggestion, while putting his hands on his hips in a very cheeky way. Via Kirk's log entry, we find out we have a happy ending. Testimony from the surviving security agent exposed Prusk's plan to establish a police state. He and his men are in prison. A Baton delegation led by Ross is meeting for the first time with the Quatrini government to talk peace. In sickbay, Sulu is feeling better and thanks Ohura for saving his life. Kirk comes in and tells Sulu not to get too comfortable in sickbay. Sulu says he is itching to get back to the bridge. Kirk tells him yes, but he won't be going to the bridge he expects to go to. 
Kirk congratulates Captain Sulu and tells him the Excelsior is his. The end. Yeah! Captain Sulu! We just witnessed it. Pretty cool. And see, Shatner was really grateful and happy. He was. He was very cool. I I wish that could have happened in, uh, what, uh, five, was it? Right, yeah. I don't know. I, I think that I, I wish there was a little bit more ceremony to his promotion than, oh, by the way, uh, you're getting your own ship while you're sitting there in the in the medical bay. Well, I yeah, know. I mean, I, I guess they could have kept the information from him until he was able to leave or ask him if he even wants it. No. <laughs> Well, we know in earlier issues, at least Ohura does. I don't know whether Kirk knows about it. Right. But uh, at least Ohura knows of his desire to, to become a captain. Right. And did he, did he actually say something when they were on Earth walking around? Did he did Sue actually say something about taking an exam or filling out forms or anything well, I don't about being that. promoted? Eh, maybe not. Because it did uh, seem pretty sudden. I mean, don't you usually have to, like, apply for that kind of stuff in the military? Right. Do some interviews. <laughs> I do some interviews, exactly. Yeah, we're going to give you a ship, you know. But come on, he's he's a, he's old. He's a commander. I mean, how long has he been on the flagship of the Federation? Come on. Yeah, well, and the and, and Enterprise already had two captains, so... <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a lot of move. There wasn't a lot of chances of promotion there. No, there, it was a very top-heavy ship. A lot of captains, a lot of commanders already. So, anyways, I'm happy that he finally got the promotion that we knew he would get, and I'm looking forward to the next issue where it has the Excelsior and the Enterprise in the same storyline. Exactly. So they have a little note there at the end, talking about uh, the both ships coming up against a new Klingon threat. Now that isn't. I mean, that isn't enter- that isn't Star Trek Six, is it? No, no, it it happens after Star Trek Six. So this this okay. ends before. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe it happens before. It just sounds. I mean, obviously, you know, Star Trek Six has a Klingon threat and a Klingon promise of peace, but yeah. right. So you would think that 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 this next story will have to happen before Star Trek Six. So right. But it came out after Star Trek VI, so it gets confusing. Yeah. You can only try to stay in continuity with the movies so much. Right. But anyways, kudos to him. Yes, indeed. So did you notice something odd about the cover? Let me look again. I don't think I did. Uh, Let's see. It's something that very rarely happens in comic books these days. Well, it's definitely odd that she's in her normal uniform and her hair is perfect. That I, I noted that as odd. Uh, right. There are a lot of planetary bodies in the, you know, in orbit, which is kind of interesting. Maybe the, uh, Beta just has a lot of moons. Um, now, j- just uh, look at that cover and then look at page seventeen. Oh God! You can maybe go to seventeen. I am, and I know the digital one's going to be a little harder than... than Good old-fashioned uh, paper? Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm so if you look at the last 17. panel on page 17... I'm moving to 17. Okay, so this is the real scene. 
Right. And, and she, of course, she's appropriately dressed. I mean, she's got the, the parka on, that kind of stuff. Right. But it, it's almost exactly the same panel, which, as we know, the cover artist usually takes a lot of liberties as far as what's really going to happen in the story. Right. So it's it's very rare that the cover is just a you know a maybe a a cleaner larger uh drawing of an exact panel from the comic book right because if you look at it it's almost exactly the same except her outfit right and uh there's a little bit more detail on the cover than there is in that panel right i just thought that was cool oh doesn't happen very often no so there was some coordination going on i mean it used to happen all the time i mean like uh you know Back in the day, the you know the cover was sometimes a panel from the book, you know. Right. Was well, keeping the the cost down? Well, it was never the exact panel, but it was you know like if Superman was fighting Lex Luthor, it, there was a picture of Superman fighting Lex Luthor on the cover, you know. Sure. There wasn't as many liberties as they have in, in books nowadays. Exactly. It's the it's the marketing these days. The marketing folks that are involved, damn it. Right. Anyways, uh, I thought the ending was a little abrupt and, and that it's wrapped well, up in a captain's log that Prask well, is, has been brought to justice. Yeah. Yeah, they, they wrapped it up quickly at the end. But I also think that the way Chekhov – and I mentioned it a little bit tongue-in-cheek in, in my synopsis. But it's like – I mean, these guys are murderers, you know? They, they shot their own people. Right. And all Chekhov has to do is just say a few words and then, you know, have like five security guys behind him, but have this little hands on his hips, like, oh, you're going to give up right now, aren't you? It's like, I, I thought that was kind of weak. I think it's the five security guys with their pistols drawn that that really <laughs> really, really did them, it maybe. Him. Right. I don't think they're really looking at Chekhov at all. You know, personally, I think it would have been more appropriate to have a shot or two fired. Personally, but whatever. Also, that big, mean, nasty, almost Darth Maul-like, Satan-like, Sinestro-like Colonel Gavok. Right. At the end of the previous issue, now towards the end of this issue, he's almost a comedic foil. And definitely at the end, when he's on the ground clutching his nuts, um, <laughs> he, that's definitely comedy. Well, she got him. <laughs> oh, she did. She did. And, and also, he, he looks like a bit of an idiot as they're going into those caves and finding those life sign generators. I, so, didn't, th- I didn't see him as an idiot. I mean, he got tricked by... You know, clever Batons. Yeah, now, he he looked a little bit like uh like he didn't know what he was doing. He looked like less of a threat, but to me, yeah. But him getting kicked in the that region uh, adds. It's gonna take you down. I, I say uh, and, so. unless your genitalia is in a different place. Exactly, which has happened on occasion. But it looks like in this one, they might be there and they might be really sensitive. <laughs> well, quite frankly. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you've ever been kicking the nuts, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Hell, yeah. <laughs> it it's it works. <laughs> As a defensive move. Uh, all right. Well, enough about that. 
Yes, exactly. So is it just me, or does Ahura look really good in all these issues? Oh, she, she looks good. I don't know if she looks really good. Although I will say that, given time, I think Ross and Ohura could have become an item. But yeah. Would, would, but would Farian have gotten in the way? Uh, you think? I don't know. If, they, if she would have been stuck there, and if Sulu would have died, who knows? But would she have ever started helping him because of the Prime Directive? Well, would she have helped them because of the... Yeah. I, 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 I didn't buy the Prime Directive thing in this circumstance. Well... As to why she wouldn't help them. I know I would have helped them, but, you know, hey, I'm not a Starfleet officer. Well, where does the line draw in, pro- in the Prime Directive? Say that again, because I was talking over you. I am not a Starfleet officer who believes in the Prime Directive. But where does the Prime Directive... Where does that line? Because what if they didn't want to give up Ahura and Sulu? Could Chekhov and them shoot them? Or would that be breaking the Prime Directive? Well, good thing it wasn't put to the test. But I mean, what really could they do? Chekhov, with his his amazing posture and, and five security people... But if Ross said no, and it turned into a firefight, yeah. But why? But yeah, I mean, that, that, that's always breaking the prime directive. That is always the problem with the damn prime directive. <laughs> always. I mean, if you really, I mean, if you want to take it by the letter of the law, supposedly they swore they die before they break the prime directive, and it's like they bend the hell out of it, you know, all the time, especially Kirk. Right. They all do. Yeah. But Kirk gets to do it the most. Yeah, because they were making up the Prime Directive as he went. The writers. Oh. <laughs> right. So, in Enterprise, the TV show, I know they talked about how, you know, something like the, they didn't say, did they say the Prime Directive in the end? He might have. I don't but think they, they ever that, did, but they said that they needed some sort of directive. Exactly. Exactly. Some, right. So they mentioned the need for something, like a kind of like a Prime Directive. But I didn't know whether they actually did it while the show was still on. Uh, yeah, they did. I think it was even in the first season when oh, was it? That, that there was a group of people that were like basically dying of... No, it was... There was two species on the same planet. One was kind of subservient to the other one, but the yeah. the dominant species was dying out. Uh, and Flosk found a cure for their disease, but they decided they couldn't give it to them because it would break with the uh, the planet's natural evolution right that the lesser species was supposed to take over that planet eventually anyway so they they right. couldn't interfere with with that the natural development of the planet right and, and then i think the exact quote at the end of the episode was archer sitting there going you know we we need some sort of some sort of directive and it would be good <laughs> if it couldn't be divided by any other directive <laughs> uh you just add that last bit yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I think pretty pretty likely. Well, they did make a lot of jokes about that kind of stuff because, you know, when they didn't call it Red Alert and then they started calling it Reed Alert because of uh, Commander Reed. Oh, God. And then uh, they talk about, you know, the, the need of having some sort of conduits behind the the bulkheads. And he was like, I'll talk to my friend Matt Jeffries at Starfleet Academy or Starfleet <laughs> Engineering. Engineering, yeah. So the that's obviously the uh, origin of the Jeffries tube. Uh, hmm. There was a lot of good stuff in Enterprise that that kind of 
tip of the hat thing. Exactly. Anyways, back to these fine issues. Uh, I don't really have that much else to talk about. I think I've already mentioned most of mine. Yeah, really. The only thing I have to mention really is not a big deal, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much. But at the beginning of when they first go to that Quadrini little base or whatever they were calling it. The cave? Well, oh, oh, I... The Quadrini, yeah, yeah, right. Quadrini's, right. Um, so, you know, looking, I thought it was like like some kind of underground thing at first or something. Something more impressive. But then by the end, we find out, we really see it's a tent. Right. It's a... It's a tent, and I went back to the, the to the beginning of the issue, or kind of like the early middle, where they first go there, and sure enough, you know, you can see the very top of the tent, and it's like totally surrounded by snow. Yeah, I thought it was a big bunker at first, and then, yeah, like you said, you find out it's not that big. It's just a tent. It's just a tent. All right. And my last, really, my last comment is these three issues, and Kirk almost does nothing. Kirk and Spock are definitely exactly uh, the B story here. Exactly. I mean, they don't even bother. Yeah. And then McCoy doesn't do much except in the first issue where he's saving the what Bakken, Boken, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The one we did last week. Yeah. Well, I guess he was going back and forth with forth with Kirk about uh, they shouldn't have let them right. go. Yeah. No, that was his only scene in this, these three issues. Right. Yeah. It just doesn't happen very often where uh, Kirk and Spock aren't the uh, main thrust of the story. I agree. And and, and quite frankly, I've, I've mentioned this before, but in these issues, Spock very frequently – it's been a long time since I remember Spock being in the, in the, in the focal point of the issues. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, maybe it's just luck of the draw, but it just seems like it's been a while. Yeah, he hasn't been doing any crazy mind melds and things like that. <laughs> yeah, r- burning his eyes out or whatever. <laughs> well, yeah, that was in the IDW one. Exactly. He 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 is pretty big there. He is pretty big there. But in the, in this time period of DC Comics, they're not they're not giving Spock a lot of love lately. No, they're not. And and again, it's cuz they're giving a lot more time to these the other characters. I mean, like yeah. building up the romance between Chekhov's cousin and, and Sulu, and then uh, they're just spending a lot of lot of pages on on these guys. Scotty's right. not getting any love, but no, every, all point. the other ones are getting some good stories. Right. Yep. It's cool. Well, they're trying to mix it up. I'm sure it'll switch here pretty soon. Exactly. All right. Well. Uh, Next next episode we'll do the uh, next generation, thirty one through thirty three. But uh, real quick, you want to do the expanded universe? Yes, please. So this is May, June, and July of nineteen ninety two. So in May there was a original series novel called The Disinherited, and listen to this writer. Uh, staff and and tell me if it sounds familiar. Peter David, Michael Jan Friedman, and Robert Greenberger. Huh. So Robert Greenberger's writing. Cool. Right. If you remember, publishing wise, about a year earlier, the three of them wrote a uh, Next Generation story. So this was their hand at the original series. Ah. Huh. 
Uh, I haven't read this one. Uh, supposedly, it takes place shortly after the Modella incident or the mm-hmm. Modella imperative. Mm-hmm. Uh, has to do with uh, a colony being attacked, and the Enterprise encounters a fleet of quick and small deadly ships. Hmm. And then somehow this species somehow has some sort of uh, long-term consequences for the Federation and the Enterprise itself. So with those three writers, I'm sure it is quite good. I need to read this one and their Next Generation uh, novel. It sounds good. That sounds very good. All right. So in June, there was the Next Generation novel called Imbalance by V.E. Mitchell. And this has insect aliens, which I always like. So you, usually, <laughs> the, usually the aliens are very humanoid looking, but uh, this was a race of uh, insects, uh, and they just need to open up diplomatic relations with the Federation. And Captain Picard is ordered to negotiate. Uh, I have not read this one, so I don't have a lot more. Negotiate with bugs? Yeah. Nah. They just with a can of raid there on the desk, and they'll pretty much cave to anything. <laughs> All right, and then in July, uh, another original series novel called Ice Trap by L.A. Graff. And I haven't read this one either, but it looks like it's an Ahura and Chekhov type story where they are trying to solve a mystery surrounding some uh, disappearing scientists on a ice planet. Huh? Mm. Ice planet? Mm. Hoth again? It's not Hoth. It's actually Nordtrol. Nordtrol. But Hoth, Delta Vega, Beta—they're all the same, right? Yeah, it could be. But I like uh, I like the sound of Hoth better than what Nordtrol. What Nordstrol? Nordstrol sounds Scandinavian. Yeah, get it right. Get it right. Okay. All right, and then also in July, uh, in addition to the regular series uh, issues of the comic books, there also was a graphic novel that was released called Debt of Honor. Oh. By Mm. Chris Claremont, who was a big writer for Marvel at the time. And uh, we're actually planning on doing that issue in episode 82. Wow. You don't say. Very yep. interesting. It's going to be a big one. And it, well, it's a bigish book, isn't it? Uh, it's about a hundred pages or so. Yeah. Okay. So buckle uh, up, everybody. It'll be the first time we do devote a whole episode to one book. Right. So it should be interesting. It's actually a pretty good story. So at least it, we have that going for us. Good. I look look forward to good ones. And if all the stars align as they should, we will actually have a uh, a guest host that week. A guest host, you say? Yeah, it's always nice to have guest hosts. Indeed. And who might this be? Our good friend Brian, who Brian. was with us way back in, um, what episode was that? 52, 51, somewhere around there? I have no idea the number. <laughs> it was actually 51. 50. It was 50. Okay. Good memory. I, I remember that it was right around the one-year mark, so I knew it was was right there in the 50s. So by simple mathematics. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so hopefully all that will work out, and he'll, he'll be with us uh, in a couple of weeks. Good. That'll be great. All right, so until uh, next week, talk to you guys later.
Okay, sounds good. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Okay. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.